Good morning. I want to thank Dean for clarifying my superficial reading, the NASA report. And I really should have said more along the lines that this was what they're speculating or theorizing to be the case, not what they've confirmed to be the case regarding those planets. So I kind of overstated the confidence level of what they're finding at this point in time. Let's go ahead and begin class for prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And we ask that your spirit will be with us as we Uh, study this quarter glimpses of god we want to see you lord open our minds and in our in our own ability our own finite ability to uh, discern you we would be lost so we ask for your spirit to come and dwell with us today that we can um, discern the difference between all the uh, distortions that we've heard growing up and the, the reality of who you are that we might see you today we pray in your holy name amen and we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly by the way does anybody need one i've got an extra Oh, good. First hand. You got it. <laughs> there you go. All right. You're welcome. And we're doing lesson number three, God as Redeemer. God as Redeemer. And as we look at, um, at what Christ did for us as Redeemer, there's several assumptions or, or things we just need to recognize as a starting base, baseline. And that is, Christ came for the purpose to save mankind, put an end to sin, and secure the universe. That was his mission. And Christ completed that mission. He's done what's necessary to save mankind, destroy sin, and secure the universe. That's done. We are just, that's our starting point. Everything else we talk about now is how and why. How and why. Not whether it happened. It's historic. It's done. Now it's how and why. And there's a lot of disagreement about how and why. And there's a lot of implications, depending on how, how and why you explain what he did, the, the, the implications on how we see God, the glimpses of God we get are different. In fact, we might even be glimpsing different gods, depending on how we explain it. And so that's what we're going to go through today, some of the elements of his mission and how do we explain it. Uh, first paragraph quotes Ephesians 2.13. It says, but now, this is Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And near to what? Near to God. We would say near to God, yeah? Okay, brought near to God by the blood of Christ. So then, how do you understand the blood of Christ brings us near to God? She says, shows us who he is. Um, So the blood is not some magic potion we use to teleport ourselves into heaven? If we could get a few drops? Or is the blood of Christ a powerful inducer that we can use as we approach God, we pull it out, show him, calms down his objections to our sinfulness, and thus secures our spot in his kingdom? Is that how we use the blood of Christ? How How does the blood of Christ bring us close? It shows us who he is. Shows us who he is. It shows his love for us by his dying on the cross. And that and the blood, of course, represents his life. And he showed us how to live a perfect life. Notice she said the blood represents. I love that because so many times people get stuck on the actual literal blood. Is it about the literal blood? Wendell. It helps us live that life. And the closer we live that life, then the closer we are in harmony with God. So it brings us close to God. I like that very much. The blood is a metaphor for the life, and we partake of his life being transformed, and we become close to God in character, in heart, in mind, in motive. Isn't that what you're saying? 
Yeah, so this is how the blood brings us close. It brings us close in our motives, our hearts, our, our affiliations, our desires, our values. We become close to God. Why? Because we have red corpuscles sprinkled on us? Or because the blood is symbolic, as the Bible says, of the life, and we partake the life of Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I like the symbol of what we do, um, you know, quarterly or whatever, with the foot washing and with the last the supper, you know. It, when you actually take that little thing of bread and wine, those things actually become your molecules. They aren't God, but in symbol, they're showing you that as you take this stuff in, it actually becomes you. Well, since you brought that up, I'm going to jump way ahead, third paragraph, Wednesday's lesson. It says, the evening before he died, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He then gave instructions that this event should be observed until he returned again. This ordinance of communion instituted by the Lord himself and the only commemorative act he personally authorized is not a memorial of his incarnation, nor is it his miracles, nor his parables, nor his preaching, but only of his death. Christ himself wished above all else to be remembered by his death. And it just didn't strike me right when I read that. Did it strike you right as you read this? And we jumped ahead. We're going to go back in a minute. You're going to understand that the reason they're emphasizing his death, why why do they emphasize his death? Payment. It's all about the penalty. It's all about the payment. And you're going to see this as we go through the lesson. But... I'm going to suggest that they've missed the point of the communion service. Christ is not emphasizing his death. He's emphasizing the remedy that he achieved for our condition that we are to partake. As we partake of the symbolic blood and partake of the symbolic bread, we are partaking or ingesting of a remedy that he has procured for us that we internalize into our hearts and minds. So he's asking us to remember by him, by partaking of him, we are transformed, we are cured, we are cleansed, we are renewed. So the communion service is to is not simply about a death penalty paid, but a victory over a condition that we can then share and partake of Christ. I remember John chapter 6, where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's teaching us not cannibalism, but the internalization of him into our characters. And so I would suggest that, in fact, that the communion service is not primarily to focus on his death, but to focus on the victory over sinfulness that his death achieved for us and that we can partake of. And I think you leaving that part out, it misses the whole point. I don't know, is, is it me or am I missing it? So... And this is uh, Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing, page 54. While the law is holy, the Jews could not attain righteousness by their own efforts to keep the law. The disciples of Christ must obtain righteousness of a different character from that of the Pharisees if they would enter the kingdom of heaven. God offered them, in his Son, the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, his love, would dwell in them, transforming them into his likeness, and thus, through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. This is what we're, what the communion service represents, the partaking of the righteousness of Christ into our characters. Russell? Yes. Okay. Wendell? In Luke, in the description of that service, um, it's Luke chapter 22, um, 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Was it remembrance of my death? Was it of anything else? It was remembrance of me. And then it goes on, 
In the same way, he took the cup and after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Same thing. Yep. It's the promise. That's right. And what's the new covenant? I will... My law in your hearts and minds. My and, life in your heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and of course that new covenant, we have it recorded in Hebrews, but where else is it recorded? In Jeremiah. The same exact quotation. The Hebrews quote of the new covenant is a quote from Jeremiah. So when Christ talks about this is the new covenant poured out for you, he's referencing Jeremiah about I will write my laws on your hearts and minds. You'll be renewed. This is the way we do it because it's the law of love, which is the principle of life that I have restored into humanity by my, by my victory here in your behalf. This is what he's talking about. So good. All right, let's go back to our lesson. Um, and I, as I was studying this week about the purpose of Christ, our Redeemer, I came across uh, comments in a Bible commentary on Christ's life, uh, book Desire of Ages, page 700. And I found it very interesting and thought maybe we could explore some of these concepts. It says, Christ suffered keenly under abuse and insult. At the hands of the beings whom he had created and from whom he was making an infinite sacrifice, he received every indignity. And he suffered in proportion to the perfection of his holiness and his hatred of sin. His trial by men who acted as fiends was to him a perpetual sacrifice. His trial, a perpetual sacrifice. <laughs> To be surrounded by human beings under the control of Satan was revolting to him. And he knew that in a moment, by the flashing forth of his divine power, he could lay his cruel tormentors in the dust. This made the trial the harder to bear. Have you thought that the idea that Jesus was not only tempted, like we've described before in Gethsemane, with those human emotions to avoid death to try and save himself that tempted him. But if you thought through the idea that he was tempted by his revulsion to sin, the purity of his character to exterminate sin, that that was a temptation to him. We, we've talked in here many times about how taking upon himself our nature that when death was, was confronting him in Gethsemane, he was agonizing and he wasn't, it would be possible to let this cut pass around me, that he wasn't wanting to go through that, that his human emotions were tempting. We've talked about that side of it. Have you seen the side of it, though, where Christ's holiness, his purity, was so revolted by sin that he was tempted to just exterminate sin? Didn't it say that? When was the last time you were so pure of heart that you were tempted to just want to exterminate sin. We, we sometimes, I think, most of us have had occasions where something of a sinful nature was so disgusting to us. It made us sick. We, we've come across that on moments, on periods, and we wanted to exterminate it if we could. But how intense do you think it was for Christ? How often did he experience that? Every moment of every day that he was on planet Earth, he experienced that. Yes? When you talk about exterminate sin, do you mean exterminate the person who's causing the actions of sin? Or may it clarify that? What was revolting Jesus? Why? Human beings, it says, it says, to be surrounded by human beings under the control of Satan was revolting to him. Human beings controlled by Satan were revolting. Are human beings revolting? Are human beings revolting to Christ? Would a parent be revolted to see their child under some form of mind control, like in a cult, 
And under that cultish mind control, their child does very detestable and debased and wicked things. Would that revolt the parent? Would the parent be revolted by the child? Would the parent want to kill the child? What would the parent want to do for that child? What do you think God wants to do for those of us in sin? So another element is why, if divinity flashed through his humanity, would it have destroyed his tormentors? Why? That consuming fire of God's presence, which is the fire of what? Fire of combustion? Fire of revelation. Fire of revelation. Fire of truth. Fire of love. You ever seen people even on this dimly lit, and when I say dimly lit, this, this earth that's so darkened by distortion and lies and misunderstanding, that, that even on this planet, have you ever seen somebody who's had to confront a truth or a truth is brought to bear to their life and they shy away from it, they back up from it, they don't want to see it, they get uncomfortable in the face of it? Have you ever seen it? Multiply that by infinity when God presents himself in ultimate truth. And they become instantly aware of all truth. The truth of their own heart, the truth of their own condition, the truth of the evil they perpetrated, they've never changed their heart from, the wickedness that they still love in their heart. I mean, is this an infliction? I'm going to suggest to you the suffering and torment. It happens by unremedied sin in the heart. It's never put upon them by God from an external source. So, Desire of Ages 23, it says, Had Christ appeared with the glory that was his, with the Father before the world was, we could not have endured the light of his presence, that we might behold it and not be destroyed. The manifestation of his glory was shrouded. His divinity was veiled in humanity, the invisible glory in the visible human form. Because Christ was going to come with anger and hostility? No, he was coming with all the mercy and love of heaven, but we still would have been destroyed if he didn't veil his glory because of what we just described. So, what do you find revolting in this world? A child cursing their parent? Is that revolting to you? A, parent, a, a person abusing a child? Cancer? War? Terrorism? Racism? Gossip? Whatever it is, multiply that by a millionfold, whatever you find revolting, and then imagine you have that intensity of revulsion in your heart, and then you're given the power to destroy it. That was where Christ was. The only way he could destroy it was to destroy us. What would you do with that power? What would you do with that power? Well, the movies are all about that, you know. Strike up a villain and how awful he is, and then the vengeance is great. People come in and take care of that and save the victim and wipe out the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Next paragraph. We read one paragraph. It's our just page 700. This very next paragraph... Um, when, the one we just read about how it was revolting to him, we read that. Here's the next paragraph. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to be revealed in outward show. They expected him by one flash of overmastering will to change the current of men's thoughts and force from them an acknowledgement of his supremacy. Thus they believed he was to secure his own exaltation and gratify their ambitious hopes. Thus when Christ was treated with contempt, there came to him a strong temptation to manifest his divine character. By a word, by a look, he could compel his persecutors to confess that he was the Lord, above kings and rulers, priests and temple. But it was his difficult task to keep to the position he had chosen as one with humanity. Have you considered that before? 
how hard that must have been for him to... Remember Philippians. Did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. What would you have done in that circumstance? Oh, it would have felt so good just to smack him around a little bit, wouldn't it? Hmm. But don't we know for the second coming to destroy all of this? Hmm, good question. So right on. Let's just pause for a second. I'm going to bring that question back. Um, you notice how it said they believed he was going to secure his own exaltation, is what she said. They were looking for him to use power to secure his own exaltation. How many believe at the second coming he's going to use his power to secure his exaltation? Destroy sin. But destroy sin for what purpose? To purify the universe. Hmm. How many believing he's coming back to do exactly what the Jews wanted him to do then? Put himself on the throne and destroy his enemies. Isn't that what the Jews wanted him to do? Take the throne, destroy your enemies with your power. How many believe the second coming will do the same? Yes. You alluded to that answer a little while ago. The term is truth. We can't handle the truth. As mortal beings you see it every day somebody hits you with the truth you back off you already answered your question when christ comes again we can't handle it if we have not kept our you know how would i say for lack of words eye on him i like that two thousand years ago why did he not use power to force his enemies to acknowledge him why did he not do it the accusations of, of satan in the beginning was not about his power It's about how he used that power. So, have you ever heard the statement, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? Do you find that to be true? Yes. Yeah. So, if Christ uses his power to force... There's another hand somewhere I missed? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think that we see the problem with all of this that was displayed incredibly in the whole uprising in Libya. Those people had been so oppressed and so tortured and so abused that they revolted against it. And when they got the power, they turned around and turned into the same kind of abusers as they had been fighting against. If we have that in our heart, that we want the power to set things right, which they did, we'll we'll just... You've pulled out several nice elements. One... When somebody tries to coerce and pressure you, in any circumstance, dating relationship, governmental situation, somebody's coercing and pressuring you to do something that you're not convinced in your heart you want to do, what does it breed in your heart? Rebellion. Coercive pressure breeds rebellion. That's what eventually happened. So, question, why did Christ not use power to force them to acknowledge him? Number one, what happens in the heart? Yeah. If he would have used his power, would they have bowed to him because they loved and trusted him or because they feared him? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were? Perfect love casts out all. So wait, using coercive power puts fear in the heart. Fear is whose motivator? Satan's motivator. So if God uses the principle of power, coercion, to force people into line, so they're afraid of him, they fear him, they may acknowledge him, but whose motives do they practice? Satan's motives remain in their heart. Love, love does not be, is not established. It doesn't free them from their insecurities and selfishness. Yes? But what about Christians who say, God is in control? I mean, you hear Christians say, God's in control, God's in control, and they, they almost seem to me to use it like, 
God's going to make everything right. But if your child, let's say, is kidnapped, tortured, killed, whatever, and you think God is in control, then what are you going to think of God? What is God in control of? Himself. Guys, get that. He's in control of himself. Let your mind meditate on that for a moment. And you look at all the distorted theories out there where God loses control of himself. And when the creator, the designer, the the governor, the one who establishes all the design protocols, the one whose, whose energy sustains the whole universe, maintains control of himself. Think of the implications for our universe. Think of what it means for what he's not in control of. What does he not control? His intelligent beings. He doesn't control the minds of his intelligent beings. Because to do so would, would destroy what? Freedom. freedom and free, destroying freedom destroys love. He could make us all robots. He could do it. He could program us all. But we would just be machines at that point. No capacity for love, creativity, free will, none of that. Yeah, so he won't do it. I just wanted you to see some of the reasons why Christ did not use power to force them to bow to him. It would have incited rebellion. If they would have acknowledged him, they would have gone on serving him out of fear, not out of love. So their hearts would have remained motivated by fear and self-centeredness, not self-sacrificial love. They wouldn't have been transformed in character. So if that would have happened 2,000 years ago if he used those methods, what do you think will happen today if he comes and uses those methods? Methods of coercive pressure and power and might, and you better love me or I'll, I'll use my power to eradicate you and destroy you and kill you. Well, what? At the second coming, what gets established in the heart? Fear, Satan's motive, and rebellion. Same thing. This is why it's not that way. Will sin be eradicated? Yes. Why? How? Jeremiah 2.19 says, Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Oh, I like that. Yes, the wages of sin is? Yeah, that's exactly right. God cannot achieve his goal of cleansing the hearts and minds of intelligent beings from selfishness, fear, wickedness, and sin. He can't achieve his goals of cleansing those minds by the exercise of might and power and coercive pressure. That's why the Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. And the Spirit's the Spirit of truth and love. So, what does Jesus conduct, as we've gone through so far, not exercising his power, even though he's tempted to eradicate sin, flash his divinity forth. He restrains himself and doesn't do this, even though it's revolting and disgusting to him. What does this tell us about God? Even though he had at his fingertips the power, he didn't even have in thought to hurt them. It wasn't his thought. Can you trust a God like that with power? Next paragraph. It says, The angels in heaven witnessed every movement made against their loved commander. They longed to deliver Christ under God. The angels are all-powerful. On one occasion, in obedience to the command of Christ, they slew the Assyrian army in one night, 185,000 men. How easily could the angels, beholding the shameful scene in the trial of Christ, have testified their indignation by consuming the adversaries of God, but they were not commanded to do so. He who could have doomed his enemies to death bore with their cruelty. His love for his father and his pledge made before the foundation of the world to become the sin bearer 
led him to endure uncomplainingly the coarse treatment of those he came to save. Now get this next sentence. It was part of his mission to bear in his humanity all the taunts and abuse that men could heap upon him. The only hope of humanity was in this this submission of Christ to all that he could endure from the hands and hearts of men. When you talk about him being our sin bearer, did you get this idea that his sin bearing had to do with bearing our abusive sin against him? Did you get your mind around what I just said or did I confuse you? I'll read it again. It was part of his mission to bear in his humanity all the taunts and abuse that men could heap upon him. Is this a different type of bearing than every sin ever committed by everybody past, present, and future is put upon him and punished upon him? Hmm. So he bore our sins at the cross. Does it mean all those acts ever committed? Or does it mean that he took upon himself our condition, our iniquity, and then also bore with our sinful abuse of him. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, um, at the cross, the most humiliating, inconceivable uh, manner imaginable, God triumphs over the shames of the enemy. Love, justice, compassion fuse in a singular dynamic act. God forgives sinners by paying in himself the price of sin and absorbing into his own suffering self the penalty of that sin. On Calvary, God reveals how extremely costly forgiveness is. First question. Which is more costly, to forgive or not forgive? They never point that out. What would have cost God if he would have remained hostile to humanity? If he would have remained begrudging, unforgiving, unwilling to redeem? What would have cost him then? Yes, his whole universe would have been lost. It cost God infinitely, we will freely admit, to redeem mankind, there's no question. But I'm going to suggest to you it costs more to not forgive than it does to forgive. Second question, what do you think about this idea that God forgives sinners by paying in himself the price of sin? When Jesus prayed to his Father, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, did he mean, Father, as we collect payment on our debts, as we get recompense for the wrongs done to us, as we receive just and fair compensation for the injustices uh, perpetrated upon us, and then we forgive those who have done us wrong, you also, Father, collect the payment on man's behalf of man's sin debt of my blood and then forgive them. Is that what it means? That's what I hear them saying. Am I mishearing it? I mean, it said... God forgives sinners by paying in himself the price of sin and absorbing into his own suffering the penalty of that sin. Huh. Yes? How many times have we heard people say, when this person does something for me, then I can go back and forgive that person? Is that forgiveness? No, it isn't. No. When I put it in the terms that I just put it in, how did you like how that sounded? Is that what Jesus prayed? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Was there any sense of recompense, payment in that prayer? In fact, think it through. If someone owes you a debt, you've loaned them $1,000. They have gone bankrupt, they can't pay it. It's a debt, 
Remember the parable of the 10,000 talents? Okay, 10,000 pounds, $10,000, they can't pay it. And someone comes along, maybe a, a brother, a brother of theirs, and, they pay, and that brother pays you the $10,000 on their behalf. After you receive the $10,000, would it be legitimate to go to that person and say, now that I've gotten the 10000 from your brother, I forgive you your debt? Would that be legitimate? If you've received the payment for it. It doesn't sound like, it just doesn't work for me. You either forgive the debt or you get payment on it. It's, I don't get it. Yes. If that's the way that it works, why wait the thousands of years for time to transpire to do that? Why not just do this in the Garden of Eden? Yeah. Because obviously that's not the way it works, isn't it? Same thing. If that's the way it works, blood, blood debt, then why when, when Jesus was a baby, innocent baby Jesus, perfect son of God, no sin, Herod wants to shed his blood, make, make that blood payment, boom. Well, God didn't let Herod shed the blood of innocent baby Jesus. We would have had the Son of God's blood shed, payment made. Didn't happen. Why? Something more was going on. Much more than the death penalty to pay some type of legal debt. One of Satan's strategies is to call confusion to introduce distortions and misrepresentations. And this is one of those places because it's correct to say it cost God and Christ an infinite price to save mankind. That's correct. It's correct to say God and Christ paid an infinite price to save mankind. You can say those words. And those are correct. Just as a father who donates a kidney to save the life of his son in renal failure could be described as paying a high price to save his son. But we would be wrong to say that he had to pay the legal price by giving his kidney. That would be wrong to say. So, if a child is in renal failure, why is the price of saving that child a new kidney? Why? It's the only thing that will heal him. It's the only thing to heal him because his physical life was constructed to have operating kidneys. That's how it was built, right? So, why was the death of Christ necessary to save mankind? Why was that the price that was needed? Because physical life was constructed to live with love. We lost that. Because life, humanity was built to operate upon the law of love. And that was no longer in existence in the, man, in the character of mankind. And Christ came to destroy Satan's principle out of mankind and put God's law back where it belonged in the heart of man. Now, the, further, the price was not to get God to love us. The donated kidney given by the father was given because he already loves the child. And if the child had, had kidney failure because he disobeyed dad and drank you know, some uh, uh, coolant and, and, and killed his kidneys, that's, you can do that. And, and that's why the child's in real failure because of disobedience. The, the father's already forgiven the child. The father already loves the child. And, and that's why he gives the kidney to save the child. It's not to give the kidney so I can forgive the child. Same with Christ. Christ was not given to get forgiveness. Christ was given because God already forgave. Is that not right? Yeah. Okay, and so in the lesson... Oh, go ahead, Wendell. Uh, uh, the point I was going to make is the next paragraph at least got that right. Yeah, I, was, I was going to go to that next paragraph right now. Thank you. Do you want to read it for us? Christ didn't die in order to create love in God's heart for us. No, Jesus insists that the Father's love is a source not the consequence of the atonement, John three sixteen and 17. God doesn't love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. 
The atonement of Christ was not offered to persuade the Father to love those whom he otherwise hated. The death of Christ did not bring forth a love that was not already in existence. Rather, it was a manifestation of the love that eternally in God's heart. Jesus never had to persuade the Father to love us. And notice how he insists on this truth in John 3, 16, 17, and 16, 26, and 27. Wasn't that nicely said? Did it trigger any memory trails pop up when you read that? Mine did. Here's what I found. Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those he otherwise hated. It was not made to produce a love that was not in existence, but it was made as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart, an exponent of the divine favor in the sight of heavenly intelligences, in the sight of worlds unfallen, and in the sight of the fallen race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves us because Christ died for us, but that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son to die for us. The death of Christ was expedient in order that mercy might reach us with its pardoning power. So it sounded very similar to me. I, 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 uh, so I, I think that there was some inspiration behind that, um, that quote, and I liked it. It's great. What does it mean, those he otherwise would have hated? It says, atonement of Christ was not made to induce God to love those whom he otherwise hated. In other words, that otherwise would have hated. In other words, it's suggesting that, as I read this, to induce God and those whom he otherwise, he didn't hate them. That's the point. It's, it's, she's contrasting two views. This view that God hates sinners and Christ needs to die to get him to love those he hates. And he's saying, no, he doesn't hate them. He already loves them. So it's not suggesting that he hates them. It's actually a contrasting the two views. It's just kind of a funky way of English to say that. It's old English. Older English than our English. The third paragraph states, the real tragedy is that we have lost much of the knowledge of God against whom we have sinned. Can you say amen to that? Amen, that's so right. We do not even feel that we have much to repent of because we're not always sure about just how much we have offended God with our sins. We can become dull to just how bad sin really is. Modern religious sentimentality often minimizes the repugnance of sin. And because sin doesn't make us angry anymore, perhaps it becomes harder to realize that sin arouses the wrath of a holy God. Mm. What do you think about what's being implied by this statement? We're not always sure about just how much we have offended God with our sins. What's being implied? What do you hear at that statement? That God is the problem. Does it sound like God is offended? That's the way it suggests to me. Now let's just be let's let's clarify. Is sin offensive to God? Yes. Absolutely. Is God personally offended by sin? Well, let's look at some evidence. How did Jesus respond when he was being abused by men? We just read how he was being mistreated and how it was revolting to him and how it was, uh, you know, the sin was offensive to him. We read that. Did he respond by taking personal offense? How dare you treat me like this? I am God. I'm your creator. You have no right to treat me this way. You impudent rascals, you. Did he take personal offense? No. Father, forgive them. Now, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen... So I would suggest to you that God does not take personal offense, but he's offended by sin. Why? Yes, it's offensive in the same way that you, are offen- that you find a doctor finds disease offenses. It destroys that which he loves. 
So yes, sin is offensive. It's completely out of harmony with how he built life to operate. It's destructive. It's vile. It's gross. It's deforming. It's disgusting. It's degrading. It hurts. It it rips apart. It tears. It gnashes. It's horrible. And And it's offensive. And we should be offended by sin. Just as we are offended by cancer or HIV virus or anything else. But are we personally offended by it? How dare you get cancer on my, as my patient? Ha, I mean, you're my patient. How could you have gotten cancer? Do you realize what that's going to do to my reputation in this community? I'm a doctor. You got cancer. I'm your, oh, what? You know, see, we would look at that as quite disgusting of the doctor to act that way, wouldn't we? And I think the same thing. God becomes less beautiful if we suggest he's taking personal offense. But it's suggested this way, and it's not only suggests he takes offense, but it offends him so bad he becomes wrathful, and he has to act out in his wrath to punish unrepentant sinners for offending him. This is how it's suggested. Yes, Wendell. I was trying to explain this this week to um, someone in a different context, a medical context, and I, I instantly thought of John 3.3, 3, where Nicodemus comes to, to Christ and starts this discussion, and Christ quickly says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and we often think, oh, he can't be saved, whatever. No, he can't even comprehend it. There's no comprehension. Exactly. You see it. Yeah, and I love that. See that? And you take that text. Uh, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And you contrast it with the two places in Scripture where it says that those who pierced him will see him coming in the clouds. Christ said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of, the, of God coming in the clouds of glory at his trial. He said that. And then in, in Revelation, it says those who pierced him will see him coming in his glory. And so you put them together. Wait a minute. They can't see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. But here these unborn again people are going to see him coming in his glory what what how, what do you make of that? No, they still don't see the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of love and what they see is something to be terrified of and they beg for the mountains to follow him. They run from him. They think he's horrible. They think he's coming to destroy them and all he has is heartbreaking love in his heart for them. They still don't see his kingdom. It's amazing, but you're right. See, I just love putting those together. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. In the lesson, it says, Paul is not afraid to discuss the wrath of God. How does he express it in Romans 1.18? And do you notice how they just pointed to 1.18? For the wrath of God is being revealed against wickedness and the, righteous, and, and the uh, unrighteousness of man. Is that what it says, something like that? Yeah, they didn't go far enough. Who suppressed the truth. Yeah, who suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Do you notice, though, they just stop at verse 18. It doesn't, it doesn't all it tells us his wrath of God is being revealed. It does not tell us in verse 18 what the wrath of God is. If you want to know what the wrath of God is, then you read on down. And Paul tells us in the next verses, he tells us that they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And because of this rejection of God's character, nature, and knowledge, God does something in verse 24. He takes an action. Therefore, God gave them up. In verse 26, God takes an action. Therefore, He gave them up. In verse 28, God takes an action. Therefore, he let them go. He gave them up. And in verse, in chapter 4, verse 25, the same exact Greek is used describing Christ at the cross. Therefore, God gave him up. Some verses will say gave him over, surrendered him over, but it's the same words. God let him go. This is what's happening. This is God's wrath. 
So let's jump to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson um, asks us to read Isaiah 53. And let's, let's kind of go through that. I'm going to try to go through it as quick as we can. But let's go through Isaiah 53. But before we do, look at the second paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. It says, although much exists in this chapter, one point stands out more than anything else, and that is the substitutionary role of the suffering servant. Notice all the times that he is paying the price for the sins of others. And I want you to notice, we're going to go through it. I want you to count up all the times he's paying the price of sin of others as we go through this, okay? Get your little pen out, mark down all the times he's paying the price for the sins of others as we go through. Um, As sinners who have violated God's law, we can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. All of our good works cannot bridge the gap between us and God. The only way to save us is for Jesus to pay the penalty in our stead and then offer us his perfect righteousness, which we claim by faith. So Isaiah chapter 53, if you want to look, we can start. Verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I'm going to pause right there. Remember, we talked a moment ago about how they were looking for someone to come in power and might. Ellen White says in Signs of the Times, uh, January 20, 1890, the Savior of the world proposed that no attraction of an earthly character should call men to his side. The light and beauty of celestial truth alone should be the drawing power. Why? Why should he not come with grand displays of beauty, might, uh, a a tiara of some kind, you know, uh, grand robes, gold, uh, all this majesty? Why? I'll tell you why. All that can be counterfeited. Satan can perform miracles. Satan can have a beauty show. He can do a fireworks show in the sky. He can do all this stuff. Satan cannot counterfeit the truth. He has no truth. God does not want you to be convinced because of the, the beauty contest. Who is most beautiful physically? For the, who, the grand light show in the sky. Who can do the most with power and might? He doesn't want you to be convinced on that. He wants you to be convinced on the nature of his character based on the truth as you understand it. That's why he came the way he did. So, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one whom whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who despised him? Why was he despised? Was he like Hitler or Lenin or Stalin or Nero going around doing all this horrible stuff? No, he only did good. Look at his life. He only did good. Why was he despised? I mean, we look and we despise Hitler, don't we? Why would we despise Jesus? Because he was a mirror. A mirror? He showed, he showed each person that he came in contact that sort of the truth about themselves. And often we don't really like to know the truth about ourselves. He did that. He exposed the fallacy of their hypocrisy, for sure. But didn't he also show that he wouldn't use power and might to make people worship him? Didn't they want someone who was going to punish the Romans? Didn't they, weren't they mad at him because he wouldn't punish the Romans? How many are waiting for Christ to return to punish people, to, to make the person who raped them pay in the fires of hell? How many? Maybe they'll be offended when God doesn't do that. When God maybe saves the rapist. And they're in heaven too. Hmm. 
Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. I love this verse. You should mark this one in your Bible. Because all the penal substitution people will always talk about how God had to kill him at the cross. And there's a prophecy here. We're going to misunderstand and we're going to consider that God did it. But God didn't do it. It's a great verse. Now this text talks about substitution. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Does it talk about paying a penalty? Do you see that in the text? What I want you to mark are any of the texts that talk about what the lesson said, that if there's one thing above all others, it's that he paid the penalty as our substitute. You're going to find as we go through, it's not in the the Bible. But he he was our substitute. For what? Well, would it be appropriate for the Bible writers who actually knew Jesus personally to help us understand this passage? Would that be appropriate? Matthew eight sixteen and 17. Here's what we read. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So Matthew tells us that carrying our infirmities was not a legal process. It was a delivering, healing, regenerating, restoring, saving process. Huh. He bears our griefs, carries our sorrows upon himself to deliver us from them. So he comes to take our condition upon himself in order to cure us, to heal us, to restore mankind back to God's original design. So thus far, how many paying penalty prices do we have so far? None. Let's go to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you hear a, a price in this one, a legal price? Or do you understand that this is the process whereby he had to eliminate the infection of sin from humanity. That he took upon himself our condition. He was tempted in every point like we are, yet without sin. When, when, when the, the, the devil and his agencies assaulted Christ, and I've got a quote down here a little farther I will read to you. This is Desire of Ages 693. It says, But God suffered with his son. Angels beheld the Savior's agony. They saw their Lord enclosed by legions of satanic forces. His nature weighed down with the shuddering, mysterious dread. There was silence in heaven. No harp was touched. Could mortals have viewed with amazement the angelic host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating his beams of light, love, and glory from his beloved Son? They would better understand how offensive in his sight is sin. What is God doing to his son? And that uh, goes with verse, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see the offering and prolong the, his days and, and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. What did the Lord do to him? Did the Lord crush him? He let him go. My God, my God, why are you raining fire down from heaven to consume me and torture me? Why are you letting me go? We've read about God's wrath. Why was it the Lord's will to allow Christ to go through this? Why? Why was it the will of a father to allow his kidney to be taken for his son? 
This was the only way whereby mankind, who was now degraded by a motivation of self-centeredness and fear, could have that motivation removed from the nature of mankind and have God's law put back in the very nature of mankind. This was the only way to do it. It wasn't the process of... And, and, and the way we understand this goes back to which... How do you understand God's law? Did God design life to operate in a certain way? in harmony with his own nature and character of love. Does sin violate that very principle, that operation, and, and, and results in death? Or does God impose, like imperial Rome, rules over his creatures that we have to abide by or else he will punish us for that? Which way do you understand it? And, and depending on how you answer that question, you will then understand differently what Christ is doing at the cross. You understand differently Isaiah. He's either healing, restoring, regenerating, taking our place for the purpose of overcoming where we could not to put the law of love back into the heart of of the human species, or he's substituting himself so the Father will pour all his anger, wrath out on him and punish him in our place, depending on which way you understand God's law. I think there are verse 10 where it says, after yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, it says he hath put him to grief, but then it says, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. I think that's talking about when we make Christ's soul the offering for our sin. He says the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And then God sees his seed. He sees Christ in us. Mm -hmm. And he will prolong our days for his sake. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall be in our hearts. So how do you understand that? I think since it comes directly after... um, that verse where it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he had put him to grief, that it was a reason. Why did he please him? What was, what was pleasing about it? Do you have a text in, in, I think it's Hebrews, for the joy set before the Lord, he endured the cross, right? What was the joy set before the Lord? Our salvation, our reconciliation. Ah, so what, why did it please the Lord for this to happen? For our salvation. Back to him. Yes, to heal this universe. And it was bigger than just humanity, too. This was a universal-wide conflict. It was for his creation, for those he loved. It pleased him to go through this process to put an end to to the infection that was spreading and destroying his creation. He didn't want to see some... It was through this process Christ could bring an end to suffering and death. And actually it says the final enemy is death. Where is the sting, O death? Through Christ, what he did here, and we have several other verses, like in Timothy, um, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, but by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. It pleased God to destroy death. Or Hebrews 2, by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. It pleased God to destroy him who holds the power of death because he doesn't want his creatures to be killed. Did you hear in here anything that the lesson suggested about that? I didn't see it. I can see where they see it because they're looking at it through the lens of the assumed, imposed imperial law. And when you look at it through that lens, then that's what you see. But I don't see it coming out of the text itself. People want to be right. You're raised from a little kid to know right from wrong. You're, you're raised to believe that there's law, that there is a, uh, there's fairness, that there's justice. And that, you know, through our institutions, we can create this to a point. 
And I think when the religious institutions like the mainstream churches try to take the law of God and say that it's abolished, they we object to that because we say this is a representation of God's character. Okay? The law is is a you know a mirror of God's character. And we're supposed to reflect off of that. You know, obviously we always fall short, and this is where we have to have somebody to pick up the load and push it for us, so to speak. But what happens is that once you feel like you have aligned yourself with God or with your religious institution, like the Adventist Church that believes so strongly in everything that's right, supposedly, then when somebody comes along and says, your dependence on the righteousness or the character of God as you see it in the law as a as a, an expression of justice, <coughs> that's offensive because you feel that you deserve the right to determine what is justice and what is fair. And especially if you're treated unfairly. I think people do struggle with what that justice is. I wish we had time to go into God's justice and how that applies to our life today. Um, let's go jump to Thursday's lesson real quick. And top sentence, it says, Nothing is more destructive to our grasp of the atonement of Christ than the sentimentality that some, sometimes passes for Christianity in our day, all in the attempt to make the gospel conform to modern thinking. However, we must ever humbly acknowledge that anything we say about God can never do God justice, especially when we consider the atonement. We must avoid the temptation to reduce Jesus' death at the cross to merely an example of selfless love. It was certainly that, but considering our situation as sinners, it would take more than an example of selfless love to redeem us. It would take instead our, our God bearing in himself the full brunt of his own wrath against sin. Now, first sentence, first sentence, I, I dispute. I dispute it. Nothing could be more destructive than our grasp of the atonement of Christ and the sentimentality. No, nothing is more dis- destructive than accepting distorted views about God. Accepting God is like Satan made him out to be. Accepting God is angry, wrathful, tyrannical, punishing, severe, unforgiving. That is the most destructive thing, in my opinion, that you can do. A sentimental Christianity with a loving God is not as destructive as a punitive, wrathful, angry God. Neuroscience will tell you that it's damaging your brain to worship an angry, wrathful God. Look at the history of mankind and see what happens when people worship an angry, wrathful God and how they treat others. There's nothing more destructive than that. And then, how I read this paragraph, I don't know how you read it, but this is, uh, this is an attack on theories of the atonement that are non-penal substitution. Now, we have been alleged to teach moral influence theory. And that's what this is attacking, moral influence theory. We don't teach moral influence theory. We don't teach it. And moral influence theory just simply says what this alleges here. Christ died to show us love. Let's go home. That's it. Still a better theory than substitution. Thank you very much. And I was going to suggest to you, but if you had to err, and there's two ditches. On the error on the left is a revelation of love, and that's all that was necessary. Error on the right, pay a legal penalty to absorb the angry, wrathful, tyrannical rage of God and absorb it in himself. Okay? Error on both sides. Now, 
if you are suffering from a disease and a doctor has a cure for it, do you have to understand how the doctor developed the cure to benefit from taking it? No. Do you have to understand how the cure works in your body to benefit from taking it? Do you have to trust the doctor enough to take it? Yes. Okay, moral influence theory stuff that gives a picture of God that is so loving and gracious that it leads people to trust him. Even if it doesn't explain correctly the remedy, it leads people to the trust point. That's the key point. They open their heart. They don't have to understand how Christ achieved it. They don't have to understand how it works in their life, but they have to trust God. Views of God where he's angry, wrathful, punishing, hostile, and we're only safe because we're hidden from him by Jesus that protects us from him, that incites distrust, keeps us afraid of him, and is a barrier to our ultimate salvation. So I'm going to suggest even with both errors, Russell's exactly right. This other view is going to lead more people to salvation, in my opinion. Uh, if you want to take this other view to the extreme, this other view to the extreme says God is, is required to torture people in hell for all eternity. And one of the founders of our church said that doctrine has caused more infidels than any other doctrine in history to turn people more against God. This view that God must torture people for all eternity. Well, that's just an expression of the idea that God must torture it all. Just one way to express it. So, aren't you thankful that God is not like that? I grew up with a picture of God like that. Some of you might have too. I grew up living in fear. I remember going to bed at night wondering, was there some sin I forgot to confess that it's not written out of the books yet that I'm going to get punished for if I die tonight in my sleep? What was that prayer they used to have? What was it? If I die before I wake? I mean, come on, what are you doing to little kids? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yes, and, and we, how many went to bed afraid like that besides me? Anybody else? Yes. I'm glad we don't have to go to bed afraid. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are like Jesus. Sin is completely offensive to you, Lord. But you don't take personal offense and you're not mad at us. That you want to destroy sin ravenously like a doctor wants to destroy disease. And Lord, we open our hearts and ask that your spirit will come in to eradicate the fears and insecurities and selfish motives from our heart. Right in the, these principles of love and grace and peace and joy and goodness that we can be lights. But not only have the, those motives in our heart, give us intelligence, give us wisdom, give us discernment so that we can articulate these truths to so many people who are, who are confused by a traditions they've been raised in that the light of, of your glory, the light of your character can go around this world and we can really see you very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.